The talk this evening is on avoidance. Avoidance, the desire or the need to avoid things, is a mechanism in our lives which holds a tremendous amount of power. At times our avoidance of things is conscious, but often our very avoidance of things, people, situations is one which takes place on a much more unconscious or even habitual level. When avoidance is a strong force in our lives, it becomes quite possible to actually direct our lives on the basis of avoidance. Avoiding whole variety of different things, avoiding people, situations, experiences, avoiding challenges, avoiding making decisions, avoiding taking responsibility. We avoid whatever seems to have the power to threaten us, or avoid whatever seems to be either outwardly or inwardly a source of pain or a source of conflict. And yet, in avoidance, in avoiding the unpleasant, in avoiding the challenging, in avoiding the confronting, we also, in all of that movement away from things, also avoid ourselves, avoid knowing ourselves very deeply, avoid also being able to actually be with ourselves very totally. And that mechanism of avoidance which operates in our lives is one which can color almost every area of our lives, our meditation, our relationships, our life directions. And in that coloring and influencing so much in our lives, it's a mechanism which is destructive to our well-being, destructive to our vision of ourselves, and destructive to being able to fulfill our potential as a human being. I wonder if we're even ever aware often how much energy avoidance consumes. We can become very skillful at avoiding things. In fact, our avoidance routines can become incredibly sophisticated simply because we've had so much practice at it. And yet the more elaborate our avoidance scenes are, our avoidance mechanisms are, is also the degree of energy that they consume. For some of us, or some people, they're quite aware, quite conscious, at least on an intellectual level, of many avoidance routines that take place in their lives. And at times those routines are almost kind of rituals, as if there's almost a, a scene setting in order to avoid different things. And yet those rituals of avoidance often involve cluttering up both our lives and our minds with enormous amount of unnecessary equipment and props and burdens in order to support our capacity to avoid. Probably in the States you have some situations, classic situations, which bring out this desire to avoid in a large number of people. In England, we definitely have them. And I'm sure this is not a mechanism which is geographically located. 
In England, the classic one which portrays this desire to avoid and the whole dynamics that take place in it is, in England, the train journey. You take that classic situation, at least in England, where many people travel on a train. You take the classic situation of you have a number of unfamiliar, different individuals being put into an enclosed space and confined there for a period of time. Now that actual confinement seems to bring out an enormous amount of feeling in people. You can be sure that all those people who get onto the train, that none of them wishes to be isolated, alienated, disconnected or lonely. And yet something about that classic situation brings out a tremendous amount of discomfort, inner discomfort. And that inner discomfort and the desire to avoid it overrides that fundamental need or wish to be connected. And one sees in that, in that classic situation, if you ever have the wonderful opportunity to do it, how much equipment is involved. Like you get people, you know, everybody either has a book or a crossword puzzle or a newspaper or a shopping list or, or a, a bag to rearrange or something to do something to be occupied with. And it's almost as if that situation also has unwritten rules. And one of those unwritten rules of being together is you don't make eye contact. That's, that's a definite no. Nobody makes eye contact. So you've got all these kind of shifting glances wandering around a train carriage at the kind of hairline level. And for people who forget to bring their equipment, you get all these ads posted all over the walls for people to be very so fascinated with. Another rule is you don't touch. Touching is a definite kind of real misdemeanor in that situation. So you get, although people are sitting right next to each other, you get these kind of classic moves of everyone's leaning on one side to be as far removed as possible from the person beside them. And see, this is how much energy goes into that situation of not making any form of contact whatsoever because of the fear, the unfamiliarity, the insecurity, the anxiety. And a train journey is almost greeted, the end of it is greeted with this kind of collective sigh of relief. And not necessarily because the relief of the journey or, or reaching one's destination, but just being able to get out of that situation. I'm sure many of you here have experienced also a kind of classic situation of being in contact and yet not wanting to contact, being connected through different circumstances and yet on another level not being able to connect, being together and yet at the same time because of different feelings or forces or memories operating within oneself, needing or wanting to distance oneself from the situation, essentially to avoid it. And some of our avoidance mechanisms are very personal. They're individual. We're very familiar with things that we may avoid or people that we may avoid. Sometimes they're habitual or so repetitive that we simply take them for granted or value them or simply being very unimportant, that it's not significant or valuable to look at or to examine why we avoid things. And no matter how insignificant how trivial or how superficial our avoidance of things appears to be, 
still consume energy and avoidance by its very nature creates limitation. And I feel there's a value and an importance in understanding and being clearly conscious of what we avoid, outwardly or inwardly. Also, even more important to, be, to understand why we feel the need to avoid things. And even more important to really clearly see the effects of avoidance upon us. There are times in our lives when it is skillful to avoid things. If you are in a situation, a relationship, a work situation, um, some kind of living environment which is filled with stress and tension and conflict, and you realize and clearly see that you're just being overwhelmed by it or overpowered by it, then it is skillful to remove oneself from it. If you see that one do, we simply don't have the inner resources to cope with the degree of stress or conflict or pain that we're exposed to, then there is a skillfulness in removing oneself for a period of time from that situation. The skillfulness is a recognition of a need for a certain connection with inner resources to deal with conflict. And the avoidance is skillful only as a first step to actually connecting with and collecting those inner resources so that one can return to a conflicting situation, an unresolved situation, or a stressful situation with the inner capacity to work with it and to deal with it. It's fairly obvious all of us through our life experience, that we need to be equipped inwardly to deal with conflict creatively. We need to be equipped inwardly to be able to deal with stress, with pressure, with demands in a creative way rather than be undermined by it or overpowered by it. And certainly we wouldn't anticipate going into any life situation without being clearly connected with our inner resources of being able to meet that and accommodate it in some way. And the qualities which are very essential and in many ways are prerequisite to be able to work with conflict or stress or pressure creatively are being clearly connected with the qualities of spaciousness, of balance, of clarity within ourselves. But if we're honest with ourselves, realistic, looking at ourselves, and in looking at what we avoid in our lives, we probably find that a great deal of the situations, things we avoid, don't necessarily have that skillful motivation behind it of temporarily removing ourselves in order to go back to it. We may in fact discover that much of our avoidance is based upon fear and is based upon rejection. And fear, for all of us, is a powerful force in our lives. And often when we go through the kind of superficial layers of conflict, of, of confusion, of pain, of anger, we find beneath it some level of fear and insecurity. And we avoid in life 
on a conscious and unconscious level, as long as we're not connected with the motivating forces behind it, as long as we're not aware of how much fear is involved in the very need to avoid things. Certainly afraid of many things. Afraid of being hurt, afraid of being rejected, often afraid of being disapproved of, of not being accepted, often afraid of not being able to meet up to the expectations of others of our, or of ourselves, often afraid of not being adequate, of being worthy, afraid of separation, sometimes afraid of loss or failure, sometimes we're afraid of ourselves, afraid of our own feelings, our own emotions somehow being out of control or overwhelming in some way. When there is fear, then invariably some element of rejection follows that fear like a shadow. We reject things, dismiss them or deny the things that seem to have the power to threaten us, to harm us, to undermine us. We distance ourselves from people, from situations, from experiences as a way of protecting ourselves, as a way of creating some level of safety within ourselves, as a way of not confronting our own fears through not confronting the forms that they arise in relationship to. When there is rejection, there's often anger. Anger is one expression of denial. Anger is one expression of rejection. We reject people or situations which we feel are going to hurt us in some way. Very rarely do we become angry with anything or anyone who we don't feel has the power to hurt us. Very rarely do we become angry with things which create some kind of indifferent impression upon us. And anger, invariably when there is anger, there is some form of prejudicial kind of judgment. And that kind of prejudiced judgment often tells us so often so much about ourselves. It may tell us something about another person. It may tell us something about a life situation. But it also tells us a great deal about our own relationship to it. And yet somehow when we project some form of prejudice judgment upon others, it's so much easier and safer to dwell upon the weaknesses or the failures or the inadequacies of others rather than to also see the impact that that is having upon us and our own relationship to it. Sometimes we reject things very quickly, reject people very quickly, so that we can be first, so that they don't have the potential or the opportunity to reject us and so to create pain. Avoidance is a way of trying to protect ourselves from pain. Sometimes we're trying to protect ourselves from a memory of pain. We've had an experience in the past which has been painful and we want to avoid its repetition. 
Sometimes we're trying to protect ourselves from pain which is projected or the potential for pain which is projected onto people or situations in the present. Fear, the whole element of fear, the feeling of it, the emotion of it, the impact it has upon us, is a feeling which can be, on a very subtle level, almost a constant and pervasive companion in our lives. A fear is often based upon impressions that we have received in the past which have been painful. Those impressions make a deep impact upon our feelings, upon the quality of our being. If you have a strong, a traumatic, a conflicting experience in life, it makes a deep impression upon one's feelings. That impression gets almost locked into our own vision of ourselves. We may very well, as an actuality in our lives, be rejected. We may very well, as an actuality, have been disapproved of, have been a subject of negative feedback. We may very well have had the experience of being undermined, of being exploited, of being unloved. And the effect of those experiences is that it tends to wound our vision of ourselves. The painful experience tends to wound our vision of ourselves and our capacity to trust in ourselves. Those impressions make a lasting impact, lasting in that they are carried into the present. In each moment, we carry our vision of who we are as a person. In each moment, we carry our image of who we are as a person. When our image of ourselves or vision of ourselves has been distorted by locking into our own perception of ourselves, the painful experience, a wounded vision, then that tends to be the basis of a negative self-image. And that negative self-image, of course, is the basis of our images of other people, of life situations, of almost everything that we perceive. If we've been rejected, we may feel ourselves to be very unlovable. If we've been disapproved of in a way that's made a deep impression on us, we may feel ourselves to be worthless. If we've failed at something that we had a lot invested in, we may feel ourselves on a fundamental level in our vision of ourselves to be inadequate. If we've had the experience in our lives of being overwhelmed by a tremendous amount of emotion and chaos inwardly, we may, in our vision of ourselves, feel an inability or an incapacity to even trust in ourselves. Many of the images that we have of ourselves are changing. They change from moment to moment, dependent on the situation we're in, dependent on who we're with. But we also tend, on often on a very subtle level, to carry images of ourselves that tend to be rather static and rather stagnant. And those static images, those frozen, fixed ways of seeing ourselves, distort our, and create images of the world around us. If we felt very overwhelmed and feel ourselves to be inadequate or worthless in some way, we may very well perceive life as being threatening, as being an enemy, as being hostile. 
If we've been somehow abused or undermined by a man or by a woman, we may have a very static relationship to those people in life, find ourselves distancing, avoiding, because of a particular way of perception that's influenced by our own image of ourselves. If we've had a, a distorted or perverse relationship to authority where we've been dominated or by being oppressed, we may find ourselves every time we come into a situation where there seems to be some element of authority, find ourselves reacting, either withdrawing or else trying to simply resist it, push it away. And on the avoid basis of those images, we avoid because we don't want to repeat pain or to receive what we, what we suspect as having the power to produce pain in ourselves. When there is that element of fear, we find ourselves reacting in three different ways. One path of avoidance is simply the path of distancing, separating ourselves from things, from people, creating some sort of barrier, some sort of dis, uh, defense, so we can have this separation between ourselves and another person or a life situation. Another path of avoidance is, of course, the path of distraction. When we feel a bit threatened by something, a bit challenged by something, that we don't feel able or trust in ourselves to meet, it becomes much safer simply to distract ourselves. If you have something feeling or a state of mind or emotion coming up within yourself or in a relationship and you don't feel willing to meet it or are afraid of that experience, it's much safer just to distract yourself. And there are so many paths, obviously, of distraction available to us. Now, the path of avoidance is a path of overcompensation. If we feel that we something of a failure, if we feel inadequate or worthless, desperately striving in life to be a success, desperately getting bound up in competitiveness and ambitiousness, in the need to somehow prove ourselves in some way, not so much to others, but to ourselves. And those paths are avoidance, are ways of not dealing with our own fears, are ways of not dealing with our own images, and are also ways very much of being able to divorce or trying to divorce ourselves from actuality, divorce ourselves from life, and divorce ourselves from actually being able to be with ourselves. The problem is that when we avoid something, we perpetuate the power of whatever it is we avoid. By avoiding things, when that avoidance is dominated by fear, we give power to things. We give power to people, to objects, to life situations. And sometimes that giving of power is based on nothing more than our own projection. And yet you can't give power to anything or to anyone without taking power away from yourself. Without placing yourself in a position of an over-vulnerability, an sense or a vision of oneself of simply being unable to accommodate, to meet, or to understand whatever it is we're avoiding. And in doing that, we perpetuate fear within ourselves. By perpetuating avoidance, we also perpetuate fear. 
We also undermine our trust and our vision of ourselves. And in a very real way, each time we avoid something, we create limitation. Fear is probably one of the most difficult things to confront in our lives. Fear is probably one of the most difficult things to question, to be able to see through. So often so difficult to be able to see through to our images, to be able to let go of our memories of pain, to be able to let go of the past. Often seems that we almost need to hold on to those memories in order to create some form of defense in the present. And yet in creating those defenses in the present, it's so difficult to be open to the present. It's so difficult to be open to another person, and it's also so difficult to be open to ourselves. In holding on to our images, of course, what we do to ourselves is to deny the capacity to really see with freshness and with sensitivity and to see anew in each moment. We deny the capacity to begin again in relationship. We deny the capacity to extend ourselves, to take on challenge. Instead, we create for ourselves a limited world which is created by nothing more than the narrowness of our own consciousness which is bounded and tied by its own fears. We don't want to be hurt. It's human, nobody wants to be hurt, nobody wants to feel pain. And yet so often our response to not wanting to be hurt is to seek safety is to seek protection. And yet the ways that we try and protect ourselves or the ways that we often try and find safety ensure no real protection or safety at all. Instead, they tend to foster this tremendous amount of insecurity and anxiety. Because whenever we're protecting ourselves, trying to hold on to something, trying to defend ourselves against something, of course there's always the anxiety, there's always the insecurity that it will happen, that we will lose this state that is dependent upon these defense mechanisms. It seems that we need to have defense mechanisms as long as we equate fear with weakness. We tend to equate fear with weakness within ourselves. That if we feel afraid of something, that is some sort of reflection upon our own worth. That is some sort of measure of our own worth, our own being. And as long as we equate fear with weakness, and so deny it because we measure ourselves by it, then it becomes so difficult really to learn from fear. It becomes so difficult really to extend ourselves beyond the boundaries of fear. As long as we equate fear with weakness and measure ourselves by that, it becomes so difficult to extend ourselves beyond the limitations that the mind sets up. If we get tied into avoidance, then safety becomes a priority we may find ourselves choosing life roles, choosing identities, choosing directions in life and relationships which are distinguished by their non-threatening nature. And yet I wonder how often we've experienced it in our lives that we can, yes, pursue this kind of unthreatening or unchallenging existence and yet each time we manage to create some kind of world for ourselves which feels very secure and stable and familiar, how often in that we find ourselves simply becoming dull. 
simply becoming stagnant. And each time we avoid something, fear on some level within ourselves, we know what is taking place, we know we are avoiding something, and we know why. Because we avoid things because we feel somehow we can't cope with them, we can't accommodate them, we can't accept them. We avoid things because we feel within ourselves we're going to be overwhelmed by them or overpowered by them. Yet each time we do that, of course we create a restriction because what follows from that feeling is this sense of, I can't. I can't do this. I can't go into this situation. I can't take on that challenge. I can't expose myself to this particular life experience because this may happen. Because in some way I may be hurt, I may be, uh, feel pain, that it may not work out, I may fail, I may not succeed in it, I may not measure up to somebody's or my own expectations. And each time that I can't comes up in my mind, there is created an undermining kind of restriction. Because that reinforces so strongly any sense of trust or stability or real vision of oneself. If we at all treasure growth and treasure a relationship to life which is not limited by fear, then I feel it's a real necessity to be able to question our avoidance. A real, it's a necessity for a real willingness to be able to look at why and where we avoid things. The thing is that fear is only dissolved through experience. Fear is never dissolved through thought. Fear is never dissolved through resolution. Fear is never dissolved through willpower. Fear is only ever dissolved through experience. And experience, the experiences that make it possible to dissolve fear are only made possible by a real willingness to extend ourselves beyond limitation and to take risks in our lives. To take the risks of meeting the challenging, of meeting the unfamiliar, of extending ourselves beyond life roles or, or protected havens of existence, to really be open to the new, the unfamiliar, the challenges that call upon our own resources to grow, the familiar, the stagnant, the secure is characterized by that lack of calling. It simply doesn't call upon our own resources to really grow, to extend ourselves, and to learn through that growing. There are many ways, obviously, confronting fear. Because we only need to look at what we avoid. If we cease to avoid it, we confront fear. We only need to look at the very, ma very many manifestations and expressions of avoidance and to not, in one time, in one moment, not to avoid something. By not avoiding it, we are confronted and exposed to the very feelings that that lack of avoidance brings up within ourselves. And it's through that exposure and being with it, with a consciousness that is balanced and steady and open, that there comes about the experience of being able to move through what we have previously moved away from. And that moving through, the experience of moving through, establishes and nurtures 
that sense of trust inwardly. Just to sit, just to sit and to watch things is unfortunately not always a solution to learning to understand fear and avoidance. Because any mechanism that we have operating in our lives gets transferred to meditation and to spirituality, at least for some time. And we can avoid equally through meditation, through the misuse of meditation. We may sit and cultivate strong amount of detachment and concentration and really feel within ourselves, well, I'm really working on something. And yet that same detachment can be used to distance ourselves from things. And that whenever anything arises, and if the concentration is strong enough, you can focus on it, and it dissolves, for sure it dissolves. But detachment is not necessarily a measure of understanding. That's a clear distinction that needs to be made. To be able to concentrate, to be able to be detached, is not necessarily a measure of being able to understand something. And insight, certainly understanding, certainly insight, is a prerequisite to bringing about any form of change, any form of real or lasting change. To understand fear and avoidance, we also very much need to understand our own relationship to pain and to pleasure because they can't be separated from each other. And it's in that our own relationship to pain and pleasure that avoidance and fear has its roots. We tend to equate the pleasant, whether it's a pleasant inner experience, whether it's a pleasant outer experience, whether it's a pleasant object, the pleasant relationship, the pleasantest state of mind, we tend to see the pleasant experience as being enhancing somewhere. For sure it happens. You know, if you, if you succeed at something, if you get something that you want, if um, you get rid of something that you don't want, if you manage to attain something you've been looking for, if your relationship is working out well, if you have a so-called good meditation, the effect is pleasant and invariably there's some form of self-image that gets tied to that feeling. Our relationship to the unpleasant also tends to be quite static when there is a lack of understanding. Often when we equate the unpleasant with threat, with failure, with some sense of worthlessness. And for sure that happens too. I mean, you sit and your meditation's a mess. Invariably, you don't come out of it feeling, yes, I'm such a good meditator. Invariably, you come out of it feeling, I'm such a mess. Uh, your relationship is a problem. Invariably, you don't come out of that feeling, well, yes, basically, I'm a very sound, balanced person, and it's just something wrong with this couple's uh, dynamic that's happening. Invariably, there's some sort of inner reflection that takes place, that I'm unlovable or, or somehow don't meet up or somehow inadequate. And so the unpleasant is equated with a way of measuring ourselves in a negative way, and so it is also the basis of fear. And as long as we don't have, that la- have a lack of understanding of our relationship to pleasure and pain, then we get terribly tied to this cycle of either pursuing things or avoiding things. All based upon this need either to be enhanced and this fear of some way of being undermined through the unpleasant. But the unpleasant in itself doesn't undermine. 
It's the measuring of ourselves by it that undermines. The threatening or the challenging in itself doesn't undermine. It's our relationship to it that undermines. There is a wisdom in meditation. There's a wisdom in developing the meditation, which is a way of being with what is. Not pursuing, not avoiding, not trying to get something, not trying to become someone, but just being with what is. Being with the variety of experiences that arise within us. Not seeking to get rid of the unpleasant, not trying to cultivate the pleasant, but being very total and very open to what actually is in the moment. In not avoiding and not denying, we discover our capacity to accommodate and to learn from those variety of experiences, rather than being a prisoner of them. In being with what is and not denying or avoiding or pursuing, we discover that capacity to be able to let the past be, to let our memories be. And in that, let be so many of the foundations of our need to avoid in the present. In knowing what it means to be with what is, we discover an element of freshness, of openness within ourselves in which the very moment, the present moment that we're with, is not distorted and not colored by our memories and by our images and by our projections. And it's being with what is that is the beginning of acceptance, that is the beginning of learning. Because it is the beginning of openness, it is the beginning of sensitivity. And that being with what is Actually being with it, having that harmony between ourselves and what is actually taking place in the moment, that kind of rapport. It's in that relationship of rapport, of receptivity and sensitivity, that there comes that inner trust within oneself. And it is that trust which dissolves fear. It's that trust in oneself, the trust in one's own resources, the trust in the connection with one's own resources, the trust in one's vision of oneself and one's potential as a human being that dissolves fear. And in that also brings about an end to this need to avoid. And in that also brings about an end really to a life of limitation. May all beings live with receptivity. May all beings live with openness. May all beings live with trust.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.